So God never gave the law to save us, but to show us, to expose us, to reveal us, not to redeem us, but to reveal that through the knowledge of the law, you are sinful. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we find ourselves in chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul extols the benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he says frees us from the law. As we enter verse 7, the natural question that comes to mind then is, if we are free from the bondage of the law, does that mean that the law is actually sin? As we pick up in our study today, Pastor Brogy assures us that nothing could be further from the truth. I want to invite you to take the Word of God and turn to the book of Romans chapter 7. In a moment, we're going to begin our study in verse 7. Now, last time, if you were here, I gave you a bird's eye view of the entire chapter. We saw that there are three principal divisions to chapter 7. First, last week, we looked at verses 1 through 6, where he deals with the attitude of the legalist, the person who basically thinks that his acceptance before God is based on what he does. And there are two kinds of legalists that are spoken of in Romans. First, the non-Christian legalists. He's already dealt with them in the earlier chapters, showing that no one, absolutely no one, can be saved by the things that they do. Not even a single thing like baptism or church membership. Nothing. Because our righteousness falls short of the needed righteousness required. And so Paul shows that justification, being saved, declared righteous, is on a different basis. It's by grace and not of works. But here in the first part of chapter 7, he's not dealing with the unsaved legalist, but with the Christian legalist. The person who knows that he's saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but the person who doesn't understand that to carry out the moral requirements of the law, he needs God the Holy Spirit to help him. Now, in addition to the attitude of the legalist, there's the attitude of the libertine. The libertine basically says we have a license to sin. And so we spoke of antinomianism. It was originally a derogatory term that Catholics accused the Protestant reformers of. They said, oh, you people who teach you're saved by grace alone through faith alone, teach that because we're guaranteed and secured for heaven that we can live however we want. And of course, they didn't teach that. But that's what antinomianism is. Anti meaning against, nomos law. People who are in essence against the law. And they use the grace of God as an excuse to sin, as a license to sin. Question mark, which is the title of this morning's message. Now, over and above the legalist and over and above the libertine, next time we will look at the law-abiding Christian who understands that the law is good, but the weakness is not in the law, but in us. And so when we come to Romans chapter 8 and verse 4, he will say that the requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that's why I said I don't want you to miss a single message Because in this section on sanctification, one truth builds upon another, and God wants us to grow up in in faith. So three types of people here in chapter 7. The legalist, who fears the law, who's in bondage to it. The libertine, who hates the law, who repudiates it. 
and then the law-abiding Christian who loves the law and seeks to obey it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, to understand our text, let's walk through, get a running start into our verses this morning. Look again in verse 1. Notice how he addresses these people as brethren or as brothers. He loves them to the truth. He realizes that they're in error, but he wants to love them to the truth. Or do you not know, brethren, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? That's the principle. Law has jurisdiction over an individual only if he's alive. You understand that. You're in jail for murder, awaiting your trial, and then suddenly you die. And they say, case dismissed. Why? Because the law has jurisdiction only as long as you are alive. So he gives a principle, and then he illustrated the principle, if you remember in verse 2, with marriage. He said, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. So having stated that we're bound to the law, to the principle of law, while we're alive, he illustrates it with a married person, that a woman is bound to her husband only if he is alive. And so he continues, but if her husband dies... She is released from the law concerning the husband. God wants us to understand it. And a man intuitively does. That God's role for marriage is one man, one woman until death separates them. Someone says, well, I have a divorce. See, here's the certificate, pastor. And God says, I have your marriage certificate in heaven. And there is no divorce. Hmm. I can hear the grass growing. You see, man goes to God when he wants to be married. But when he comes and wants a divorce, he doesn't go to God. He goes to the judge. But what God has joined together, let no one separate. So he draws a conclusion. So then, verse 3, if while her husband is living, she is joined, or you could say married, as the King James or NIV renders it, though the Greek word is joined. So if while her husband is living, she is joined, circle that word joined if you don't have it circled. It's key to understanding the text. If while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. The Phillips paraphrases it. She'll incur the stigma of adultery. But, now watch the contrast, but if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Why is that? Because she's released from the law that previously bound her through death. And so Paul is saying exactly what Jesus taught. One man, one woman, until death severs the relationship. Now there's forgiveness, and I would underscore that. And this is a place where many of us need the forgiveness. All of us need forgiveness, and some need forgiveness for divorce. But we cannot lower or change or manipulate the standard of God because then we do the law of God a great injustice. So he gives the principle, he illustrates it, now he applies it. Uh, Notice verse 4, if you will. Paul's application is very simple. Just as death terminates a marriage, so our death has been terminated to the law through our death with Christ. Therefore, in other words, in light of this truth, here's the application. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him, that is to the Lord Jesus, who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, you've heard that before, right? We studied it in Romans 6 and verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? 
And we studied that word baptized. Every time you see it in the Bible, it's not always referring to water. Water doesn't bring you into Christ Jesus. Water doesn't save anyone. For those water salvationists, they are distorting and twisting the word of God. But our baptism, our identification with the Lord Jesus, identifies us fully with him. When you receive Jesus' death on Calvary, when you call upon the risen Lord, you are totally identified with him, such that when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was raised, you were raised. God counts it as if you were there on the cross with the Lord Jesus, as if you were in the grave, as you were raised with him. So much so that Ephesians 2 and verse 6 says that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Why? Because we become members of the body of Christ. And so in Romans 6 and verse 5, it says, we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Totally identified with him. So again, verse 4, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit for God. For while we're in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body. To do what? To bear fruit for death. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying because of our inability to keep the law, the law of God not only condemned us, but through our habitual breaking of the law, all we could bear was fruit for death. And so in verse 5, he says that the law revealed our sinful passions. It, It aroused our sinful passions. Well, how is it that the law of God arouses our sinful passions? Well, what is it about the sign that says, keep off the grass, that makes you want to walk on it? What is it about the sign that says, don't touch wet paint, that makes you want to just feel it? What is it about the speed limit that says, obey 35 miles an hour? You say, I'm going to do 40. See, we know something that when it is off limits, sometimes we want to have it. We want to experience it. And so the reader has been informed by the Apostle Paul that the law produces fruit for death. What a radical statement, that the law arouses the sinful nature. Furthermore, he said in chapters 3 through 5 that the law cannot justify you. It cannot save you. In chapter 6, he said the law cannot sanctify you. Well, then what use is the law? Is it useless? Is it evil? Well, that's what the antinomianists would say in our day. And antinomianism is very much alive, where people take what they know to be true because God has written it on human hearts, and they deny it. So two presidents ago, we had a president who said that a baby could be partially delivered and then murdered. It's called partial birth abortion. Twice over. He vetoed a bill that would have protected those little children. Fortunately, there was enough people in our Congress who said, that's an evil. Oh, we'll just deliver the head and then we'll suck the brains out and kill that little child. So the head of Planned Parenthood in Florida just a few weeks ago being interviewed in their Florida Senate. Well, what do you do if a baby's born alive? What should you do with that baby? She said, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You know there's over 400 babies a year that survive abortions? 
She said, well, I think it's between the doctor and the mother. That's not what the Word of God says. When does life begin? At conception. It begins at the moment of conception. Our government says homosexuality. That's the way some people are made. That's the way some people were created by God Almighty. And so we should do everything in our power to protect the status. God calls it evil. And when we call good evil and evil good, we are in the truest sense antinomianists. You can say I'm a Christian, but when you deny the plain teaching of the Word of God, you have proof positive to show you something else. And so Paul says, listen, the law, it arouses sin. It can't save you. It can't sanctify you. So what is the value of the law? Well, that's what he's going to help us to see today. The antinomist blames the law for all of his problems, so he tries to write it off. And so what we find in this portion of Scripture is really a defense of God's law. Now follow the question in verse 7. He begins, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now don't miss the significance of the question. If, Paul, as you say, I have to be released from the law in order to bear fruit for God, as you taught in verse 4, and if, as you said in verse 5, that the law arouses sin, then doesn't it follow that the law is evil, that the law is sin? Clearly, Paul, that must be what you're saying, right? And Paul says, may it never be. The sixth time we've seen this expression in Romans. Meganoita, a very emotional statement, hard to translate. So maybe your translation says, absolutely not. Of course not. Not at all. By no means. Perish the thought. Don't be ridiculous. And so Paul now proceeds to show the relationship between the law and sin. There in your outline, three simple points that he gives us. First, I want you to see how the law reveals sin. How the law reveals sin. Is the law sinful? May it never be absolutely not. On the contrary, he says. I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. God's law, whether it's in written form or embedded in the human heart, reveals sin. When God says, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you, you shall not covet, and you do one of those things, your heart is convicted. Why? Because the law of God is written in your human heart, and whether you get that reality of conviction from what God wrote within or what he wrote on the printed page, you're condemned. And so when you read the thou shalts, the thou shalt nots in Scripture, you really understand how utterly sinful we are. The law reveals my sin. Martin Luther said it in these words. He said, the function of the law is not to justify but to terrify and to drive us to Jesus Christ. The law is like a mirror. You look in a mirror, you see your face is dirty. You look into God's law, God's mirror, and you see that your soul is dirty. Now, one deals with the outside, the other deals with the inside. But if my face is dirty, I don't take the mirror and rub it on my face. That only smears the dirt. And when I look into the law of God, I can't assume, well, if I just try to better myself and keep it more faithfully, that that will solve the problem, because it will not. That's not the function of the law. We already saw this truth revealed in Romans 3 and verse 20. Paul there said, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. 
And so some people would say, well, Paul, if the law cannot save you as we've thought and as we're being taught by our rabbis in this day, what is its function? For through the law, he says, comes the knowledge or the awareness of sin. So God never gave the law to save us, but to show us, to expose us, to reveal us, not to redeem us, but to reveal that through the knowledge of the law, you are sinful. So again here in verse 7, look at your text. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. Your conscience, unless it has been seared or damaged, will give you a negative disapproval, a voice of disapproval when you break the law of God. Now, I find it very interesting here that Paul highlights the 10th commandment. Did you notice that? I would not have known about coveting if the Lord said, you shall not covet. And as he'll point out in verse 8, this is the commandment that got him. Uh, turn, if you would, to the book of Philippians. If you're new to the Bible, you're in Romans. Just go past First and Second Corinthians, and you come to four little short books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. But look at Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, in this short little book, Paul gives a personal testimony of what he was like before he was saved, and it's a real eye-opener to us, and if we understand it, it helps to shed a lot of light on the passage we're studying this morning. I think it will be a helpful refresher to some of us, maybe some reading it for the first time. Look at chapter 3 and verse uh, 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. Paul is uh, contrasting himself with those who thought they could be saved by their obedience. He says in verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, that is in my own power and strength, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. If you know Philippians, he's drawing a contrast between himself and the Judaizers. The Judaizers were the religious leaders there in the church at Philippi who taught that salvation was partly achieved through the things that you do. So Paul says, well, if you want to get someone who can earn his way to heaven, listen to my testimony. And so he says, if anyone has confidence in themselves, in the flesh, it's me. And so then Paul goes on and he's going to describe what he inherited and the things that he had done. Now, when we come to chapter 7 and verse 18, he will say, I know that nothing good dwells in my flesh. Nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. Because we have this fallen sinful nature, our best deeds, our righteous deeds, the prophet Isaiah said, are as filthy rags. They are staining the good things that we do. And so you cannot take righteousness and somehow divide it. It's like perfection. It's either wholly perfect or it's not perfect at all. Uh, to have something that is half perfect is to be imperfect. You can't have a whole half of an orange. You either have a whole orange or you have a half an orange. You're either completely righteous, but you can't be partially righteous. And so Paul describes three achievements that he inherited, beginning in verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day. Now stop right there. When he was a baby, as God had dictated through Abraham, recorded by Moses, on the eighth day, every little Jewish boy would be circumcised. That was a command that God gave. Now, unfortunately, 
Some have drawn a parallel between Old Testament circumcision and they use it as an argument for infant baptism. They would say, well, just as the first generation of adult men were circumcised and then later there are babies on the eighth day, obviously you can't argue with the scripture that the first people who are baptized in the New Testament are believers, but now we should baptize our infants as symbols that they are part of the covenant. Well, that's a very, very weak, weak argument for several reasons. Baptism doesn't save anyone, neither did circumcision. Baptism was only for little boys and for men, obviously. I mean, excuse me, circumcision was just for little boys and for men, where baptism is for both sexes. Circumcision initiated you into a theocracy called Israel, in which the Bible teaches there were both believers and unbelievers, where baptism symbolizes your relationship to the universal body of Christ, made up of Jew and Gentile alike, male and female alike. It was symbolic, not to mention that after Abraham was circumcised with all the adult men in his household, he then commanded that babies be circumcised on the eighth day. God gave no such command. There's not a single verse in the Bible that teaches infant baptism. To come up with infant baptism, you have to be guilty of eisegesis. Now, a pastor is to exegete the word. He is to take out what God has plainly said. He's not to subtract from it. He's not to add to it. Eisegesis is when you read into the text. That's why the very first case of infant baptism we have is about 197 A.D., and that case is debatable. Really, it doesn't become a full-blown practice in the church until the late 4th century. Why? Because people just reading the plain Scripture couldn't figure that out. That's something you have to be educated into. When Jesus says, believe and then be baptized, why should we reverse it and baptize little babies and then ask them to believe? So Paul said, listen, this is something I had no control over. Unlike baptism, which you do have control over, you have a decision to make. I had no control over this, but nonetheless, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. What does he mean by that? Well, if you remember in the Old Testament, there are two ways to be a Jew, either ethnically or religiously or both. And so in Esther chapter 8 and verse 17, you have Gentiles who become Jews. How can a non-Jew ethnically become a Jew? Well, he can religiously. But Paul said, listen, I was not just a Jew religiously. I was a Jew ethnically. I had pure-blooded Jewish parents. He could claim to be an Israelite, a member of God's chosen people. Now, while indeed being a Jew didn't automatically save you, still Jews had a very special place in the plan and purpose of God, and they still do, I might add. Just as God used Israel to bring the first coming of Christ, the Bible teaches God is going to use Israel to bring His second coming. If you want to know what God's doing in the world, look at Israel, and I'll tell you my eyes are wide open circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, notice the next, of the tribe of Benjamin. The very first king that Israel ever had came from the tribe of Benjamin. It was Saul. And on a purely human basis, Saul, I mean, Paul was Saul of Tarsus. Paul, the apostle, as his name was changed, was proud to be from the tribe of Benjamin. Why? Because repeatedly they're affirmed in Scripture. Unlike the other ten northern tribes, that refused to stay with Judah, 
Benjamin hung with Judah in the southern kingdom. Unlike the ten northern tribes that did flat out what God said not to do, they established another center of worship. Benjamin stayed with Judah, and they worshiped in the city of our God, Jerusalem, just as God had commanded. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, tribe of of the tribe of Benjamin. Notice a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now he's talking about traits that he didn't inherit, but traits that he earned. What does it mean to be a Hebrew of Hebrews? Well, remember, it's Saul of Tarsus before his conversion. He is from a city in Asia Minor. And unlike the other Jews who through the diaspora, dia through spora seed, those Jews who were spread beginning with the Assyrian takeover and later the Babylonians and spread throughout all the surrounding countries, unlike the other Jews who abandoned their heritages and adopted the uh, cultural expressions of the people that they lived with, Paul didn't do that. He remained orthodox. I grew up in a church where sometimes they would refer to a very, very committed Catholic and they'd say, well, he's more Catholic than the Pope himself. Well, that's the thought here. Paul says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a a Jew's Jew. Notice also, as to the law, a Pharisee. Unlike the Sadducees, who were the religious liberals of the day, who didn't take God's word at face value, the Pharisees believed in the infallibility of the word of God. And so, as a Pharisee, he would have venerated the Sabbath, he would have fasted on a regular basis, he would have prayed for long periods of time, he would have tied the, uh, a tenth of all his income, He, as a Pharisee, would have had the highest devotion to the law. He was a member of a very elite group of Jewish men in his day. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a zealous Pharisee. And that zeal is seen in the fact that he persecuted Christians. When uh, Luke records Paul's testimony before King Agrippa, he says in Acts 26 of himself, And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul ravaged the church of God, as he said in Acts 8. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Not sinless, that would be against all Jewish tradition and theology, but blameless. In the broadest sense, when you looked at Paul's life, he was one who kept the law. He sought to live up to the standards that God had given. No one could say, well, he's a thief, or he's a hypocrite, or he's an adulterer. No, sir. He was blameless as Judaism would have judged it. For a copy of today's study from Romans 7 entitled, License to Sin, Paul searched the scriptures at 877-787-7478. You can also listen to it and download it through the Search the Scriptures app, available through the Apple Store or Google Play for Android devices, or you can go to searchthescriptures.org. Do you have questions about the Bible? How do we know it's true or how it pertains to our lives today? Join us on Tuesday mornings at 11 Eastern for The Bible Line, where you can call in and ask Dr. Brogy questions you may have about the Bible. Just visit wagp.net at 11 a.m. Tuesday mornings to hear the Bible line. Next time on Search the Scriptures, we conclude our look at freedom to sin, 
Join us then as we search the scripture.